And welcome uh, to our missions month called On the Move. Hopefully everybody received a companion booklet that looked like this on your way in. Uh, we printed out enough of these for every single person to have one. So not just every family, but every person. So if you didn't get your own, uh, raise your hand at this time and a responsible usher in the back will make sure uh, that we get you covered. Uh, this is really going to be a fantastic uh, resource and tool uh, for you. It's divided up into four weeks uh, for each week of the sermon. And each week there's a space, uh, if you look there, uh, there's an overview for the week. There's a place for notes if, uh, if you want to take advantage of that. And then there's a devotional for every single day of the week. So uh, there's 28 devotions in all. Uh, as well as small group questions, reflection questions, all kinds of things. So our Hope Missions team has been working hard on this, uh, and we really encourage you uh, to use that in the weeks ahead. Before we begin this morning, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Sundays when we could gather together as your people huddled around your word to hear from you, Father to talk to you, to sing to you, to pray to you. And now, Father, we come to you with open hands and open hearts. And we are expectant, Father, that your Spirit has something for us this morning. Would you teach us something through your word, for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, the other day I was talking to a friend of mine who just got out of the military. He was uh, in the military uh, for four years, and he's out now, and like many men and women, he's struggling with how to live the civilian life. Uh, some of you have probably been in the military before, and you'll know when you make the transition uh, from the military to civilian life, it's a very different kind of thing. And he was telling me that he, when he was in the military, life was very simple, Right? He had a clear mission, he had a clear objective, he knew uh, who to follow, who to obey. He was living for something bigger than himself, more than just his own personal ambition, but he was actually protecting our country. And, and that gave him a lot of purpose, that gave him a lot of direction, but what he was finding in the civilian life is he didn't have that. He didn't have any sense of direction or purpose or mission, and so he was struggling with finding that. And as I've been thinking about that over the past few weeks, I think many people in our world today struggle with the same thing, don't they? Many people struggle to find purpose and direction and mission in life. I think about uh, 20-somethings who are coming of age and trying to find themselves. You know, they're looking for that. Uh, people who are going through midlife crises, right? They start to sense their own mortality. Uh, they, they start to look for something deeper in life. Uh, than just kind of what's around them. And many times, many of us uh, have maybe gone through a similar experience. Uh, it's interesting, in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the author crafts a story where he talks about this exact dilemma. He, he looks for fulfillment and mission and direction in the material world and, and things that you could touch. Uh, there's this cycle that he goes through where he looks uh, for meaning in life and his achievement. And that doesn't work too well. And then he looks for meaning in life and pleasure and then learning. And every single time he comes to the same conclusion, he comes to the conclusion that life is meaningless if you base your life on these three things. In 2.17, after trying to find meaning in his achievement and his hard work and his career, he says, so I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind, he says. It's like this thing that you just can't grab hold of. You can't quite attain. And I think that resonates with a lot of people in our world. I think that resonates maybe with some of us. 
There's this tension, right? We know on the one hand that there should be a mission, there should be a direction, there should be a purpose to life, but on the other hand, it's elusive and it's hard to find and sometimes we feel empty and sometimes we feel broken. And it's, this is what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk about living lives that matter. How do we live a life of purpose and direction where we feel alive and where we feel in tune with our creator? Well, I think it all starts by living for something bigger than ourselves. How many of you have ever watched a kid's soccer game before? Is kids soccer? Any kids soccer fans? Yeah? Uh, it's a blast. I think it's more fun to watch than professional soccer. Uh, you know, I... <laughs> Uh, when, when kids are five or six, it's really interesting to watch them, though, because they don't quite get the game yet, you know? Have you ever watched little five-year-olds play soccer? Uh, they're picking lilies, they're running uh, the opposite way, playing tag, laying down on the grass, you know, just kind of messing around, doing what they want, because they don't get kind of the big picture of what soccer is. Uh, but when they get older and they start to understand the game, what they discover is it's, it's better together right? It's more fun to play as a team. It's more fun to have this kind of larger mission when you're playing soccer, and I think it's very similar with us. If we're going to find a purpose and a meaning and a mission in life that matters, it has to be bigger than ourselves. We need to stop picking lilies and figure out how this game was meant to be played, and I think the first place we start when we're doing this is by understanding what I call the mission of God. The mission of God. This is hugely important. It's the main theme of the entire Bible. I want to spend a few minutes uh, just to talk to you a little bit about what this mission of God thing is. So I have a question for you. Uh, you can just kind of answer it in your head. When you think about the world, okay, when you think about the world right here, uh, what comes to mind in your head? What, what, kind of, what kind of bubbles up when you just think about the world, different countries, different nations, that kind of thing? Uh, I, I, I looked at uh, some, some different news sites the other day and, and pulled some headlines down. Maybe you've seen some of these. Violence erupts in Yemen after weeks of rallies. Malaysian jet over Ukraine was downed by high-energy objects. Beheaded journalist says U.S. is no help. Graphic new video shows Raven's Ray Rice domestic violence incident. What do these headlines tell us about the world, well, I think one thing they tell us is that the world is broken, right? The world is out of joint. Things don't work the way they're supposed to in our world. We know that deep down, and it's not just on a global level, it's also on a personal level. Relationships break. People betray us. People we love that are supposed to protect us abuse us. Sometimes we abuse and neglect other people, sometimes the problems in our own hearts, in our own lives. And so there's this sense when we look at the world that we know deep down in our bones, it's not supposed to be this way, right? It's not supposed to be this way. And I think what that tells us is that either there was a world where things were the way they were supposed to be, or there will be a world where things will be set right. When you're thirsty, it means, it means that that thirst is supposed to be quenched. When you're hungry, it means that hunger is supposed to be satisfied. And when we look at a broken and dying world, I think that that tells us deep down that things are supposed to be fixed. And according to the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that originally the world was designed for good. Originally, when God crafted, when he created this world, there was peace, and there was harmony, and there was righteousness, and there was a loving relationship between uh, humans and their God. 
But then in Genesis chapter 3, something happens, right? Humans rebel against God. They insist on having their own way, on living life their way. And this this sin, this self-centeredness, this inability to trust God leads to a fracture in their relationship with God. It leads to a fracture in, in creation itself, in our relationships with others, in our perspective of our own soul. This is the breakdown that we're talking about, but the good news that we all know is that God loved us too much to leave the world this way. So 4,000 years ago, he chose this man named Abraham in the ancient Near East, sent him on a journey, and out of his descendants, he created this nation called Israel, and he gave Israel a job. Israel was to worship him, to be obedient to him, to be a light to the nations, Exodus 19.6 says that Israel is supposed to be a kingdom of priests. They're supposed to mediate God's presence and love and will to the world. But as you read the Old Testament, and as you read the story of Israel, they don't accomplish that task, do they? They follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, of disobedience, of doing life their way. And so at the end of the Old Testament, God promises a Messiah who will someday come out of the tribe of Judah and line of David and right all wrongs and make all things new and and push salvation out into the nations. And 2,000 years ago, in a small backwoods city of Bethlehem, in the nation of Israel, Jesus was born. The long-awaited Messiah was finally here, and he brought this kingdom where he showed us what it means to be human, where he showed us God's design for good, how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to love. And then in his early 30s, when he was around my age, he was executed on a cross just like that. He was killed. He died the death that you're supposed to die and I'm supposed to die. He died a death that overcame the obstacles that separate us between a holy God. He overcame sin and death and Satan and evil so that when men and women believe in Jesus Christ and live under his reign, they are forgiven of their sins. They are made new. They are saved. The world was restored for better in the Christ event. The world was restored for better when Jesus died and was resurrected. But the story doesn't end there. You can't stop there. In John 20, 21, after Jesus' resurrection, he's talking to his disciples and he said, As my Father sent me, so I send you. As my Father sent me into this world, so I send you. Jesus is saying there that we are an extension of his work in the world. We're the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. His work didn't stop with his death, but it continues through us. This is the last point, the last circle, if we could look at that, is that we are sent on mission for God because he has restored the world for better. We are his emissaries. We are his agents in the world that are called to go out. We are sent on mission. When men and women join this Jesus revolution, they are transformed so that they can go out in the world and transform it and the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. And it's this, it's this fourth circle, this idea of sent on mission that I want to drill down on and, and talk about with you today. This is going to be kind of the theme for our series for the next several weeks. And I think it's a, a very important uh, thing to grab hold of. And so to, to look at it, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts. Uh, Acts, of course, is the story of the church living out this calling uh, of being sent by Jesus, right? Acts is is kind of an extension of Jesus' work through the church, and it's a fascinating book to read. It's 
It's kind of this adventure story of what God did uh, right after Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended. Another interesting thing about Acts is it's also our story, right? Acts invites us to become participants in this grand adventure, this grand narrative that Jesus started 2,000 years ago. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8. The text will also be on the screen above, and it's in your sermon guides if you want to look there. After Jesus' resurrection, before his ascension, Luke writes, They, that's the disciples, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But here's what I want you to focus on. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Many of you know I uh, grew up in Southern California and uh, Long Beach, and several times a year, uh, the family and I pile into the minivan and head over there uh, to visit my parents. Um, and I, you know, I love the drive, but inevitably, at some point in our drive, my oldest daughter, Adeline, who's just turned five, uh, says to me, Daddy, are we nearly there yet? Right? Have you guys all heard that before? Daddy, are we nearly there yet? It's like 20 times you know, more I'll hear it till we get there. And sometimes it's, we're not even out of the Phoenix metro area, and, and she's saying it, right? In our text, the disciples are really asking the same question, right? They're saying, Jesus, are we there yet? This, this kingdom thing you've been talking about, making the world new and all that, is, is that here? Is that the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to restore that? You see, the disciples viewed Jesus as this David-like figure, a kind of king-in-waiting who had this ragtag group of disciples, and someday they believed that Jesus would be a king in the ordinary sense of the word, you know, governmental king, and that Israel would be the top nation, that they would bless the world around them. And so they're asking Jesus if this is happening now. And Jesus' response is interesting. He says, well, yes and no. I mean, they don't really get it. In one sense, no, the kingdom's not here. Uh, it's coming, right? There's a, there's a future element. There's a future destination uh, when all things will be set right. And that's according to God's secret timetable that we don't know. But in another sense, I think the disciples needed to lose this idea that God's kingdom was going to be an earthly, governmental, political machine, because it's not that. And in fact, with the, the arrival of Jesus Christ, the kingdom is now in our midst. With the work of the church, the kingdom is now advancing. And Jesus invites his followers to be part of that. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the very ends of the world. The focus for us, friends, shouldn't be preoccupied with the destination. That'll come. But what our main focus is in this life is the job, is the vocation, is the calling that Jesus Christ has placed on the life of each and every one of his followers. We have a mission and a purpose, and it's wrapped up with this idea we find in verse 8 of being Jesus' witnesses. Jesus' witnesses. I want to talk about this uh, for the rest of our time, and I want to really ask the question, what does it mean for you and for me to be Jesus' witnesses in this world? If that's what we're called to do, if that's our primary job, how do we be Jesus' witnesses? What does that even mean? Uh, and I want to suggest to you that to be a witness means at least four things. First, to be a witness means to be a kingdom messenger. 
to be a kingdom messenger. Remember, in the resurrection, Jesus was enthroned as king over the entire world. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, it says that after Jesus died on a cross, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on, under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this is really interesting. In the first century, uh, when a new king came to the throne, for, for in Rome, for instance, uh, what would happen is that king's power would take effect as heralds or witnesses went out into the empire and declared there's a new king on the scene, right? So, so what would happen is you'd have these witnesses or these delegates, and they would go to the distant parts of the empire, to North Britain and Spain and Egypt, and they'd make this declaration that Nero or whoever was king, in the first century, that was almost always good news because they knew that an authorized government, even if it wasn't perfect, was better than anarchy. A bad government in the first century was better than total chaos. And so most people welcomed that as good news. Most people welcomed the invitation to offer glad obedience to a new king. And in our text, that's exactly what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. He's calling us to take the good news that there's a new king, that this Christ event happened, and to take that out into the nations. The picture here in our text is of, the, of this kind of concentric circle that's expanding. And so first the disciples are called uh, to stay in Jerusalem and, and to, to, to be witnesses there. And they're, then they're to go to Judea, which was the surrounding countryside. And then Samaria, where the hated uh, half-breed Jews lived, and then to the ends of the world. And according to Jesus, this isn't a sequential call, it's a simultaneous call. We're Jesus' witnesses here, near, and far, all at the same time. We don't start in Chandler and be his witnesses and, you know, save the city, and then go to Spain or Cambodia or South America. We do both at the same time, and the reason for that is because it's, the gospel is good news for all people, because Jesus loves all people and desires to know him. And many people, I think many Christians, especially that I've met, kind of push back against this, right? They, they're, they're afraid to kind of disrupt other cultures, and certainly we should be sensitive, but for us to hoard the good news of Jesus Christ and just to keep it to ourselves and just to keep it in our community, I'm convinced is selfish. God's heart is for all nations. God's plan is for the whole world to know him. That's our mission. That's our job. Yes, we do that at home. Yes, we do that in Arizona, but we also do it to the farthest reaches of the world. God has called us to be kingdom messengers. But the way that we're kingdom messengers is by announcing with our lips and demonstrating with our lives that Jesus is king. This is the second point. A witness says and does. A witness says and does. And I think the problem many churches have, the problem many mission organizations have, the problem many believers have is that they don't understand that God calls us to share the gospel, to evangelize, and to change the world, to pursue social justice, to take care of the poor, to love our neighbor. Th these, are, these are not two different options. They're, they're interwoven in the life of Jesus. They're interwoven in the life of the early church, and they should be interwoven in the life of our church and our life. 
Jesus evangelized, Jesus preached the good news, and he took care of the poor. And I'm telling you that when you announce the good news to your friends and demonstrate it with your lives, something happens. Something I can't put my finger on happens where they get a whiff of the kingdom, where they get a glimpse of the glory and the beauty of God, where they begin to see what life is all about, what it means to be truly human. A couple weeks ago, uh, my dad was in town, and we went to the movies. Uh, we like to go to the movies together, and we always get there, you know, about a half hour early because he wants the best seat in the house, so, uh, you know, we get in there. It's the first row, the one with all the leg room. We sit down, and now, you know, I don't know if you've been to the movies lately, but there's like 25 minutes of previews, right? They have, the movie doesn't actually start for like a half hour, you know, after it's supposed to. Uh, so we're watching these trailers. We're watching these previews, and there's a whole crop of good movies coming up. And during a few of the previews, I kind of did the, the poke, that kind of thing, to my dad and, you know, whispered, that looks really good, you know, oh, uh, we should see that, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and really, when you think about it, that's the goal of a movie preview, right? That's the goal of a trailer. Movie previews are supposed to give us the best special effects, the most romantic moments, the funniest scenes. And if they do their job, if they pull that off, we'll be poking the person next to us. We'll be whispering. We'll want to see that. And Jesus calls his witnesses, he calls you and I to be a trailer of the new creation to come. He calls us to be a taste of the new world where everything will be made right with all the best bits on full display. If we know that in the world to come there will be complete justice, then the church should be about creating a foretaste of that now so the world could see it. If the, if the world to come is going to be a place of love and peace and reconciliation, then we need to fashion a foretaste of that now. And most importantly, if in the new world there will be no such thing as unbelief, and every knee and every bow, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, then we need to get out and tell the world that Jesus is King now. Our job is to give a sneak peek of the main attraction to be a first fruits of the harvest to come, to borrow the Apostle Paul's language. And we do this with our hands and our lips. We, we do this as we announce the good news with our lips and demonstrate it with our lives. Third, a witness is spirit-powered and spirit-led. Look with me at the beginning of verse 8 again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This power that Jesus is referring to is the downpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened at Pentecost in chapter 2. And the Bible tells us as we follow the story that when you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, instantaneously the Spirit comes inside us. The, the Spirit of God and our spirit are united and intertwined so that our work is empowered by the work of God so that we are an extension of the work of Jesus, so that we advance his mission in the world and not ours. And that last point is something we got to remember. God is the ultimate missionary. It's his mission, not ours. Our responsibility isn't to start it, it's to join it. It's to open our eyes to the Spirit's work in the world and join him where we see him working. The primary of the job of the church is not just to do stuff. It's not to start ministries. It's not to support missions or make the world a better place. John 5.16 says that God is always at work. God is the one through his spirit who is ruling and guiding and going before us. And our job, first and foremost, is to stop, 
listen, watch, pray, and then go join God where he's already at work. And I think this is very difficult for many of us who are used to iPhones and iPads and getting things right away. But it's interesting because when you look at the end of chapter 1 of the book of Acts, after Jesus ascends, the first thing the church does is they get in a room and they pray. They don't hit the streets. They get on their knees and they ask for the Spirit's power. They get on their knees and they ask for God's leading. And I think if our church and if our lives are going to do anything, that's the first place we have to start. We have to start by asking God to show us what he wants to do in our life. We have to start by asking God what mission he wants to send us on, what gifts he wants to use. The real triumphs of the church are not a result of political power or or money or strategic planning or anything like that. Those things are fine in the business world, but in the kingdom of God, in the church, the real wins happen when men and women wait on the Spirit and follow him out in the world. We are called to be Spirit-led and Spirit-powered. Finally, a witness puts it all on the line. It's interesting in Greek, uh, this word for witness is the exact same word uh, as martyr. They're the same word. You just have to uh, figure out their meaning based upon context. You see, a witness had to be ready to become a martyr. A witness had to be ready to become a martyr. To be a witness means that you are loyal no matter what the cost. It means that you are all in for Jesus. And as I've been thinking about this this past week, I think sometimes we love that idea. We love the idea of going all in for Jesus, of reaching the world, of being world changers, of doing good things. We get fired up over that. But sometimes I think we're more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing it, right? There's a huge gulf between good intentions and missional living. It's not enough to to put the right things on Facebook. It's not enough to, to check the right boxes, What we're talking about here is a lot more. We like the idea of justice, but if there's personal cost, sometimes we don't. We like the idea of helping the poor, but what about when it takes our time and our money? We like the idea of reaching people for Jesus, uh, but we'd rather just bring them here on Sundays and have Dwayne tell them about Jesus, right? How many of us are willing to take risks, to go out on a limb, and to share our faith ourselves? Living on mission for Jesus means more than checking the right boxes. It means more than listening to a sermon on Sunday or sponsoring a child. Do those things. Don't quit doing those things. Those are good, but that's not enough. The kind of witnesses that we find throughout the book of Acts do more than check the right boxes. Their entire life is wrapped around making Jesus known. It's part of their identity. It's part of who they are. In Tim Chester's book, Everyday Church, he captures this idea well. He says, we build our lives around our identity, around how we see ourselves. If you see yourself first and foremost as a businessman or a housewife or a professional, then you are going to build your life around this with the church as part of an orbiting fringe of your activities. But, and pay attention to this, if you see yourself first and foremost as a member of God's missional people, then you will build your life around this identity. Jobs, houses, incomes, all still matter, but they are made to fit around your core identity. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying more than anything else, what's true of you is your identity in Christ. Your identity fundamentally is not as a spouse. It's not as a parent. 
It's not uh, in your job. It's not as a Cardinals fan. It's not, it's not about anything else except for Jesus. Your core identity, who you are, your primary calling in life is to be a follower of Jesus Christ who has been sent on witness for him locally, regionally, and globally. We have to understand this. We have to grab hold of this because when we do, it absolutely changes everything. It gives us this kind of purpose and mission that we were talking about earlier in the sermon. It gives my military friend what his heart is craving. It gives people in midlife crises the direction and the purpose and the mission that they know they need. And this is what God is calling us to. Our calling is more of a responsibility than a privilege. It is a privilege, but it's also a responsibility, and we need to lean into this truth. In the book, uh, The World in the book, The Sounds of World Colliding, missionary, there's this missionary to Cambodians, urban poor. His name's Kristen Jack. And in the book, uh, this missionary autobiography, he tells this uh, interesting story uh, that takes place in the slums of Cambodia in Phnom Penh. Years ago, Jack lived uh, by this riverside slum, and one day, part of the neighborhood went up in flames. 900 homes were burned, 6,000 people uh, were homeless, just like that. And what they did is they put these people in buses and they shipped them 25 miles into these rice paddies where they had no food, they had no possessions, all their money was gone, there wasn't bathrooms. They just put them on the rice fields and said, figure it out. And quickly what happened was NGOs and churches began to mobilize. They began to put together uh, food boxes and toiletries and basic necessities. And they drove out to the rice paddy and they got ready to to take the stuff uh, off the vans. And immediately the government officials and the military said, that's not happening. These people are on government land. They're illegal squatters. No way it's going to go to them. And so Christian Jack and his friends showed up. They began to meet with these military officials, and they said, you got to get this in. These people are going to die. You can't leave all of this aid right here when there's people that clearly need it. But the government officials wouldn't budge. They wouldn't budge an inch. And just at that time, Jack's friend Rick drove up in his shiny blue car, dressed in a nice blue suit, because he was preaching later on that morning in a church. Rick had come to check out the progress But because he was so well-dressed and he looked so dignified, the Cambodian officials mistook him for an American diplomat. And soon what happened is rumors started spreading. One person said one thing, another said another, and all of a sudden they thought he was the American ambassador. And so all, all of a sudden they're getting a little bit worried. They're getting a little bit agitated. Rick goes to Jack and he says, what do I say? I don't really know what's going on here. I don't understand the language. And Jack says to him, don't worry about it. Just look really serious and nod at everything they say. And so, so he does that for about 10 minutes. He just kind of looks serious and nod. And the, the officials are getting more and more agitated, more and more bothered about upsetting the U.S. consulate. Who wants to do that? And eventually they let all of the aid in. And all of these people had food. And all of these people had clothing. And all of these people had exactly what they needed. We live under the sound of worlds colliding. There's earth as we find it with all of its brokenness with all of its government in action, with all of its heartbreak, and there's the kingdom of heaven. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, these two worlds are crashing into each other. Heaven has come and invaded earth because of Jesus Christ. It is here, even though it's difficult to see, even though sometimes it seems mysterious and it seems hidden, the Bible tells us that the kingdom is here now. And in between these two worlds, you and I stand here as ambassadors from heaven, as representatives and witnesses of God, 
declaring the rule and the reign and demonstrating the kingdom with our lives to a watching world around us. Kristen Jack's story epitomizes this calling of ours to be ambassadors, to remain in service of the king and his kingdom. This means looking for signs of transformation and cooperating with the spirit. It means taking risks in life. Even though sometimes, if we're brutally honest, you and I are kind of like a phony ambassador, right? We're kind of like Rick. We walk into situations where we feel unqualified for the task. We are poor reflections of the king we represent. We are inadequate witnesses to his reign, yet for somehow and for some reason, despite our our failures and our sins, God in his grace chooses to use us. He chooses to use the weak things in the world. He chooses to use the people who don't feel they're good enough to accomplish his mission. He chooses to use us and oftentimes just stand there and nod. In uh, the movie Madagascar, there's this great scene uh, where there's this uh, family of penguins. Uh, some of you have seen it before. And, and then there's this, this leader of the penguins. They get in these tough spots where they have to kind of bluff their way out. And the leader of the penguins, in this New York mobster accent, uh, looks at uh, his associates and he tells them, uh, smile and wave, boys. Just smile and wave. You seen that scene? And they do, and, you know, they get out of it. And sometimes I think that's the best we could do when we're on mission for God. Sometimes all we could do, friends, is smile and wave. I'm sure I don't know half of what God is doing through me. And oftentimes I feel like I'm a poor version of a witness. But every once in a while I find myself in these strange situations on airplanes or in restaurants or at Starbucks where I am representing Jesus, where I am his ambassador, and I don't have a clue what to say. And I feel totally unqualified. And it's in those moments that I think God has invited me to just smile and wave, to just be his witness, (laughs) to admit that I don't have it all figured out, but, but to know that the Holy Spirit is ahead of me and behind me, that he is all around me, and that he is the one that is advancing God's mission in this world, and I am just one of the vessels that he does that with. Acts 1.8, the theme verse for our series this week, is a promise. It's not a command, it's a promise. It's a promise that Jesus will fill our lives with purpose and meaning and mission. It's a promise that Jesus will use his church, this church, to be a movie trailer for the world of what's to come. And finally, it's a promise that he will empower each and every one of us to be his witnesses locally, regionally, and globally. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Our desire is to be your witnesses. Our desire, Father, is to be sent out on mission for you. And many of us don't know where to go. We don't know how to do that. But I pray, Father, that you would show us that, that your spirit would reveal how you want us to serve you in our sphere of influence, that your spirit would reveal how we are to serve you locally and and regionally and globally, Father. And I pray that over the course of these next four weeks that you would prick our hearts for the priorities that you have in this world, that you would prick our hearts and break our hearts for the things that break your heart, Father, that you would give us uh, the kind of vision that you have, Father. I pray that you would give us dreams and visions. I pray that you would raise up from this church global missionaries who will spend their lives telling the world in word and deed about your good news. I pray that during this series that you would raise up people to be local missionaries, little missionaries here in Chandler 
who will take a risk and, and will live missional lives in their workplaces and in their families and in their neighborhoods for you. This is what you have sent us to do. May we be obedient to your calling. In Jesus' name, everyone said. Amen. We're going to take our morning offering now and